Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. A reading from Matthew 6 from the Common English Bible. When you pray, don't be like hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words they'll be heard. Don't be like them because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive others their sins, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. I hope you enjoy hearing these scripture readings in different translations. I, I hope you notice how the words are different, and maybe that's the point, is that when these words are different, that they kind of make you pop up and realize, oh, listen a little more deeply because something is different in each of these words. So, uh, choir, I have a new toy, uh, a, a blackboard here, but it doesn't have the fun little flip around feature that the other did. So, uh, you'll just have to watch on the screen when I write on this a little bit. So, anyways, uh, as most of you know, my uh, daughter is graduating from high school this year, which means we are in application season. Like that's what this year has been about. In the fall, we were writing applications to colleges, and now we're writing applications to scholarships. And and if you've ever done any of these applications, you know, there's always essay questions. And each essay question comes with a word count, which is part of what makes them so hard. Because these essay questions, they give these huge prompts, like, tell us how COVID impacted your life in 200 words, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> so you have to figure out how to say everything you want to say and to say it in as brief a space as possible. And I am not a whole lot of help in this regard because as you might can tell from my weekly sermons, brevity is not one of my strengths. It's just, I, I'm always impressed and amazed by people who can take a whole lot, uh, you know, who can say a whole lot in just a handful of words. It's not a particular gift that I have, but I admire it. And so in preparation for today's sermon, I thought, you know, I wonder how long some of the great, you know, speeches and documents and, and world history, how, how long they were. So we're in uh, Black History Month, so I looked up how many words was the I Have a Dream speech that Martin Luther King gave. Um, Now, it was a 17-minute address, and so maybe not the briefest in history, but it was briefer than this sermon's going to be. It was 1,667 words. 
I thought, oh, okay, 1,667. And then as I was reading, kind of researching, one historian, I like he pointed out, out of the 1,667, he said there were 32 words in particular that carried the most weight and power of the speech because that's how many times Martin Luther King said the words, I have a dream, eight times, four words, I have a dream, and that's what we all remember. Anyways, 1,667, 32 of which carried the weight of the message. And I started thinking, well, what about, you know, really brief messages? The first one my brain went to was Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. How many of you had to memorize the Gettysburg Address when you were in school, right? Does anyone remember how many words exactly the Gettysburg Address is? No? 272. 13 score and 12. That's a bad joke, I know. But anyways, uh, but that's all Abraham Lincoln needed. It's amazing that that's all he needed was 272 words to give one of the greatest speeches in U.S. history to hallow the ground uh, of Gettysburg. Well, then I started thinking, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Are they shorter? We call it the Decalogue, ten words, uh, you know, in in the Bible, but but it's more than ten words, obviously. Each commandment has a handful of words in it. So how many words do you think are in the Ten Commandments? Well, it's longer than the Gettysburg Address. It's a total of 313 words in total in the Ten Commandments uh, in Hebrew. Uh, so, not quite as short as the Gettysburg Address. But again, I just found myself you know, reflecting on how you know, some of the greatest speeches, moments in history didn't require many words to get across. And the reason I was thinking about word count, of course, was that Jesus instructed within his Sermon on the Mount, which the Sermon on the Mount was about 2,000 words, if, in case you're wondering. But within the Sermon on the Mount, he had a section on prayer in which he told people, Do not be like the pagans who pile up words and flowery phrases one after another in order to get the attention of God and other people's attention as well. Don't be like those people, he said, who use their prayers to make speeches to God and to everyone else. For truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward. They've already gotten from God all they're going to get. Instead, he said, when you pray, speak just a few words out of the depths of your heart, acknowledging and remembering that God already knows your needs. And then he gives us an example. He says, so this then is how you shall pray. And he provides us a prayer. Anyone want to guess how many words are in the Lord's Prayer in Greek? I heard 65. Not quite. That's close. The answer is 57. 57 words is all that Jesus uses. And yet those 57 words contain so much. And I'm about to spend 2,000 words unpacking it all for us. I've already spent like 500 of the 2,000, so it's okay. Anyways, it begins with five words. Our Father, who art in heaven... Five words, and yet those five words just, you know, right off the get-go, they, they dramatically transformed the way people thought about prayer in that day and time. Because when we pray, we're not speaking to some abstract, far-off God. 
distant in the heavens, removed from our daily lives. Instead, we're speaking to Father, one who knows our being, one who's with whom we can have a relationship. The Greek word is pater, but Jesus didn't give the Sermon on the Mount in Greek. He gave it in Aramaic. So likely the Aramaic word behind pater is Abba, Abba, Father, which doesn't just mean father in a formal sense, but has even the sense of daddy. And the reason we know Jesus used this word when addressing his father is because there are other places in scripture where the word Abba was not translated into Greek or you know, put into Greek. It was, it was left in its original form, Abba. One of the most famous examples was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That when Jesus was facing his darkest hour, when his soul was weighed down the most, he went and he prayed to God. And when he prayed to God, he addressed him, Abba, Father, Daddy, everything is possible for you. So when we pray, Father, we're speaking to one who knows our being. We're speaking to one who cares about our needs. We're speaking to one into whose lap we can crawl to find comfort, strength, comfort, comfort, strength, courage, and love. Father. But it's not my father, right? That's not how we speak. That's not how Jesus taught us to pray. Instead, he taught us to pray our father. Every pronoun, every pronoun in the Lord's prayer that relates to human beings is in the plural. Give us, forgive us, our trespasses, our daily bread. It's all our, our, our. Jesus wanted us to understand that when we pray, we are not solitary on our own, but we are connected to every other brother and sister in the fellowship of faith. We are connected to every creature that bears the thumbprint of our maker. We are connected. The, the prayer is a way of connecting to a heavenly father who loves us intimately, but it's also a way of connecting to those around us, of remembering that we are called to carry one another's burdens and one another's joys before God in prayer. So in five words, really in two, Jesus has already transformed the way we think about prayer. So that's just in the address. Following the address comes six petitions to God, the first of which is, hallowed be thy name, which this is a little bit different, right? Because I used to always think that hallowed be thy name was a continuation of the address, that that's when, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like it was all one phrase, right? That's the way I was kind of brought up saying it and the way I always thought of it, like, like, like we acknowledge where God lives, heaven, and we acknowledge that God's name is holy, just like the third commandment of the Ten Commandments. It says, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain because it is holy. But that's not what this line is about. It's not a description of who God is. It's a petition. It's something we're asking God for. May your name be hallowed. And so this prayer, which I think is the proper translation, may your name be hallowed, it is, falls in the same line with may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, and may your will 
be done. All three of these point in the same direction on earth as in heaven. So when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, what are we praying for? We're asking God, God, may all people on earth know your name. May they know you and worship you in awe and reverence. May they bow before you as king. We're praying kind of what Paul wrote to the Philippians as a promise for the future, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. May all the earth hallow your name, God. And then we pray, may your kingdom come. The kingdom was at the core of Jesus' proclamation. Whenever you read summaries in the Gospels about Jesus' message to the towns and villages around Galilee, it was always the kingdom of God has come near. So when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying for the fulfillment, the completion of the kingdom which Jesus set in motion in his life and ministry and in his death and resurrection. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about every space and every place over which God reigns. And where God reigns, God establishes shalom. Shalom, which is more than just peace, although it does include peace, but it's equity, justice, freedom, the flourishing of all people, the well-being of all people in human society. It's wholeness. May, may your kingdom come. We are asking for the fulfillment of this promise that God's kingdom would come and bring everything, like set the world right again. And then in line with that, we say, thy will be done. And in praying for God's will to be done, we acknowledge that God's will sometimes is a mystery to us, right? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. There are lots of things that happen in this world and in our lives that we say, how is this your will, God? And some things that happen in this fallen, broken world, I do believe, are out of alignment with God's will. But when we pray for your will to be done, what we're doing is we're praying for, oh God, bring back your rebellious creation. Bring rebellious creation back in line with your divine will. Restore us to the way we were supposed to be. And we're praying not just for the will of creation, but we're also praying for our own rebellious will to live in alignment with God's. Paul explains God's will in this way to this letter to the Ephesians. He says, this is the mystery of God's will, which he has made known to us through his son, Jesus Christ, as a, as a plan to be put into effect when all times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is God's will, to bring all things into perfect alignment and unity with him. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're praying for that will to be done on earth, and we're also praying for it to be done in our lives. Again, taking it back to that Garden of Gethsemane prayer. What did Jesus pray? Not my will, but yours be done. We may not always understand God's will. We don't. 
but we pray for the grace to trust and the goodness of his will and to submit our will to his, that we might live in the way that God desires. So you put these three together, and this is what I want you to see, that the Lord's prayer begins with God, not with us. It doesn't begin with our needs. It begins with God's glory, God's purpose, God's plan. What God does, the operative word in all three of these petitions is thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy name be hallowed. It's yours, God. It's yours, it's yours, it's yours. And what we're praying for in a word is the second coming for God to bring into fulfillment all the promises that were made in Jesus Christ, for God to complete the work which he began. And when I say second coming, I'm not talking about the scary stuff we see in Revelation or left behind novels or movies or books. I'm just, we're talking about the glorious vision of God making his home on earth. God bringing to an end all war, all strife, all disease, for God destroying death, for God destroying sin, for God wiping away every tear from every eye, for every person to know God's goodness and to to live in his love. We're praying, God, for the fulfillment of that glorious promise which you have given us in Christ Jesus. And we set our hope on that promise and we live our lives towards that end. That's what the first half of the Lord's Prayer is about. So the first half is about that future glory yet to be revealed. The second part is about, okay, God, but until that day comes, here's our needs for the here and now. And so the first half, the operative word is thy, and the second half, the operative word is us. And then there's a handful of verbs that we ask for. So first, give, then forgive, and finally, lead, deliver us. That's what we need from you, God. Give us this day, what? Our daily bread. Bread, of course, is not literal bread, although it could be if you're someone who's needing food, if you're struggling with hunger. But bread could be anything that you need. It's, it's whatever you need for that day. Wisdom to make the right choices, courage to face a difficult decision or an enemy, peace if you're in turmoil, friendship if you're feeling alone, comfort, strength, whatever it is you need for each day. Oh God, please give me today what I need to serve you well. It's a deliberate reference back to biblical images to manna, how God provided daily bread for the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you remember the Sunday school story, when people gathered the manna, they could only gather enough for that day. If they got more than they needed, if they you know, got excess, that next day it would turn to rot. It would have worms in it. And God was trying to teach the people to live in daily dependence upon him. And so when we pray, Lord, give us our daily bread, we are asking God, provide for my needs today. But the subtext is, but don't provide so much that I ever think I can live apart from your provision. 
I'm not self-dependent. I'm not, I'm always God, depending on you, giving you this day my daily bread. And then next comes forgive us our, what comes next? Forgive us our debts. This is a win for all those Baptists out there who've been saying debts and, and all of us who've been saying trespasses, you know, since you're a kid, you're wrong. Uh, I'm wrong. Because <laughs> that's not what the Greek means. Now, that word trespass comes from one of the earliest translations of the Bible into English going back centuries. And so it's been habit and routine. And trespass does capture the sense of being wronged, you know, you know being, you know, so that it does capture that sense. But, but the Greek word ophilima literally means debts. Forgive us our debts. But here's the key. This is the, this is the kicker of all these petitions. The fifth one is the only one that contains a condition. If. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And Jesus wants to drive this point home because it's the only one of the petitions that then he expounds upon after the prayer. He says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. This is consistent in all of Jesus' teachings about forgiveness. That the forgiveness we offer others is in the end the forgiveness we receive. And I think this is because Jesus knows that if we are harboring hurt, anger, you know, in our heart, a grudge, then our hearts are not free to live in the forgiveness which the Father wants to offer us. And I recognize this is hard. This is one of the most difficult movements for any of us to make to forgive someone else. In my first church that I served, I, I, I preached a series. I, I don't know, I got on this kick where I was like, I was preaching about grace. And I think every week for like a month, I preached about forgiveness. And finally, a member of the church came up to me and said, Pastor Dave, will you stop talking about forgiveness? And she said, I'd rather you talk about stewardship than I would rather you talk about forgiveness. I thought, whoa, I've never had anyone say that to me before. But then she said, because it'd be easier to write a check than to let go of this hurt this debt that I know someone owes me. It is so hard to let go of the relational debt, the hurt that we each carry. We all carry it, right? And not only is it hard to let go of the debt that others owe us, but it's also hard to let go of the regret or the shame that we all carry from mistakes we've made as well. It's hard to forgive ourselves. And so when I say we pray this prayer, I don't think it's instantaneous that we just say the words and it happens. Forgiveness is a long process and we have to keep praying daily for the strength to live into God's grace. Just like we pray for daily bread, we pray for daily grace. Oh God, help me today not to carry this hurt into other relationships. Help me to let go of it. Help me to receive your forgiveness. And as we pray this over and over and over and over again, we slowly move into the healing that God wants to give each of our hearts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then lastly comes the, uh, the last petition again has a compound phrase. It has two verbs. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from 
the evil one. Did you notice that? In both the scriptures, both translations, when we say it in church at the end of, you know, prayers, like we say, deliver us from evil. But both translations we had said, deliver us from the evil one, because this is the sense of Matthew's gospel. That evil is not just some generalized presence. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, like the dark side of the force. And it's not just the bad things that happen to us in life. And it's certainly not like, you know, the horror movies, the way they show evil or anything like that. No, when we pray for deliver us from the evil one, we're recognizing that there is one who puts temptation in our path. Just like Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. There is one who puts temptation in our path. There is one who desires to lead us astray. There is one who desires to kill, steal, and destroy what God has made, what God has redeemed. And and I think it's helpful sometimes, this personification of evil, to recognize that in every temptation, there is a voice which calls to us. And it is not a voice that desires anything good for us. And in praying, Lord, lead and deliver, we recognize that left to our own devices, we fail. We can't beat the evil one. We can't beat temptation. Left to our own devices, everything was, we will choose that which harms and destroys us, that which harms and destroys creation. And so we pray, Lord, help. I surrender. You, God, lead me out of temptation. You, God, deliver me from the evil one. The same way God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Free me, Lord, and lead me into a place where I live in your freedom and in your truth. Deliver me. So the first three all focus on the glorious future when God's name, kingdom, and will are hallowed, come, and done, same on earth as it is in heaven. And the next three all focus on our needs in the here and now for God to give us, provide for us, for God to give us grace, for God to lead and deliver us into freedom and light and truth. And then comes the the epitaph, the doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You may have noticed again in both translations, those words were absent because we don't think they were part of Jesus's original prayer. The earliest uh, manuscripts we have of the New Testament of Matthew's gospel do not contain those words. They were added shortly thereafter. Remember, the Bible was, you know, handwritten by scribes passing on. So somewhere, you know, in this, you know, in the second, third century, you can see scribes started adding those words to the end of the prayer to reflect that was how the church probably prayed liturgically when they used this prayer. They added those words. Do you want to know where they came from if they didn't come from Jesus? Well, they likely are an abbreviation of a doxology of praise we find in First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 13. It says, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Those are good words, right? 76 of them, to be exact. 
But the Lord's Prayer, at least the doxology we use, shortens that. Kingdom, power, glory, now and forever. Amen. What they do, that epitaph, I, I, it's, to me, it's still fine to use it because what it does is it, it's, it forms a bookend. Just as we begin with God's glory, we end by reflecting that it's God's glory now and forever. Amen. So why do we pray this prayer? Well, for one thing, because Jesus gave it to us. This is how he taught us to pray. But I believe we pray it every week. Some of us pray it every day. Because in the end, it doesn't just express our needs for grace and provision and help. But it also expresses, or it, 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 let me put it this way, it doesn't just express our needs, it shapes the desires of our heart. It molds us to live in alignment with God's will and God's kingdom here on earth. It winnows out all the frivolous things that we might be tempted to pray for, for our team to win or for you know, me to get this job. No, that's, that's not what God greatly desires. What he greatly desires is for us to trust and live in daily dependence upon him as we seek after his kingdom in all things. So we keep praying this prayer because it, it shapes and forms us. It, it's, well, there's an old uh, song I learned when I was in camp ministry 25 plus years ago. And this uh, song, uh, it's so old and obscure, I looked for it on Google. Couldn't find it on Google. What can you not find on Google? Couldn't find the song. But here's how it goes. It goes, uh, it's about a little boy. It goes, little boy prays with all his might. God, I'll be good if you give me a pony. Years later, in the middle of a night, God, I'll be good if this sale I make. And God hears, oh, but how sad, the boy has not grown, though now a man, and there's the chorus, be good and faithful, because you are free to be the best or worst you could possibly be, for strength to endure, or peace you can pray, yeah, yeah, but not for ponies, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Prayer is not a wishing well. Prayer is not a slot machine that if you say the right words and pull the lever, you get what you ask for. This prayer that Jesus gave us, it's a way for us to pray if we're seeking daily to follow after him if we're trying to learn his ways, if we're trying to abide in his grace, and we keep praying this prayer over and over and over again as a way of shaping our hearts, as a way of teaching us what it lives to live and abide in God's grace, the way God intends us to. Only 57 words, that's it. But if we allow these 57 words to do their work in our lives, They'll shape us to become all that God wants us and intends us to be. Amen. I'm going to invite Bob and Ashley to come forward. And we're going to say the Lord's Prayer. I encourage you to listen to this uh, reading. Allow it to shape your heart. Listen for what, how God is speaking to you this morning. It's entitled, I Cannot Say.
I cannot say. If my faith has no room for other people, their needs, or their differences. I cannot say. Father. Unless I am willing to come to him as a child. I cannot say. Who art in heaven. If all my interests and pursuits are limited to earthly things. I cannot say. Hallowed be your name. If I, who am called by his name, do nothing to praise, honor, and please his name. I cannot say. Thy kingdom come. If I am unwilling to give up the reign of my self-interest. I cannot say. Thy will be done. Until I put what he wants first. I cannot say. On earth as it is in heaven. Unless I am truly ready to give myself to his service in the here and now. I cannot say. Give us this day our daily bread. If I hoard more than I need while ignoring the needs of others. I cannot say. Forgive us our debts. If I am still holding others in my debt. I cannot say. Lead us not into temptation. If I deliberately choose to remain in a situation where I am likely to be tempted. I cannot say. Deliver us from evil. If I am not prepared to fight against the evil in my own life and injustices in the lives of my brothers and sisters. I cannot say. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. If I'm only seeking my own glory. I cannot say. Amen. Unless I can also say, cost what it may, this is my prayer. I invite you as we prepare to, for communion uh, to join with me in this prayer of confession printed on the screen. Mighty and marvelous God, we come to confess our sins, to repent, and to seek your mercy. Forgive us when we condemn our enemies rather than extending a hand of Christ-like love. Forgive us for how quickly we judge one another. Remind us of your righteous justice. Forgive us when we wedge time with you into the tiny openings of our busyness. Pardon our tendency to prioritize worry over thanksgiving, prayer, and petition. Forgive us when we fail to believe that you love us, no matter what. We repent for our sinful thoughts and actions. Forgive us. Reconcile us unto you and make us more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.